You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So we're excited. We are, as was mentioned, in a series of Exodus. And so we're going through the book of Exodus uh, this year. And we kind of broke it up into a few different series. And our, our first series here that we're going through is Out of Bondage. We're discussing God's covenant with his people and how he rescues them out of bondage. So our text will be found today in the book of Exodus, chapter 1, starting in verse 8. So you can turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible, this morning we have some copies in the seat pockets in front of you. You can grab one of those. We should be roughly on page uh, 45 in most of those. You can turn there with us. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Keep it, love it, cherish it, etc. Uh, and if you do own one, you can just return it afterwards. It will also be on the screen. And if you're willing and able this morning, once you get to Exodus chapter 1, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word. And we are going to read together. Exodus chapter 1, starting verse 8. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they sent taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. When Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you all. I want to welcome you here to Providence and uh, also say I'm glad to see you here, that you braved the light show last night and that we're all here. So uh, the good news is that uh, all of our church members are okay. If you didn't know, they were in the middle of the night. The reason you had that alarm is because there were tornadoes. So there were some tornadoes in uh, the area. Some were in Kingwood. Some were over here on uh, 59 by the airport. And so anyway, we're all here. Amen. Glory to God. Also, I'm reading Exodus, so like lightning and thunder and stuff. It's a little much for me right now. I just don't want this to be an omen of something. But anyway, we're jumping in this morning to Exodus chapter 1, verse number 8. And we're going to be continuing uh, through the book of Exodus uh, this spring and also this year. And I'm picking up after uh, last week, Ty's introduction, the first seven verses uh, of the book of Exodus. Kind of lining out, we're jumping in in some ways in the middle of a story in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through 
Deuteronomy. And, and we're kind of jumping in the middle of that in that Genesis starts with the creation of the world, ends with uh, a man named Joseph, who's one of the patriarchs, and kind of teaching us how the Israelites made their way into Egypt. Uh, and, and we're starting with the story of the Israelites 400 years after Joseph and how God, God brought them out of Egypt. And so we're going to be turning back to uh, the story in Genesis periodically uh, in order to give, um, I guess, Ty said this last week, but in order to kind of give context to where we are in the story, it's important that we make some turns back. But I want to make one point before we jump in, um, and just kind of thinking of Exodus broadly about the narrative of Exodus, I wanted to make one point before we pray. Uh, sometimes when we read the Bible, uh, we will we'll read it in a narrow lens, one, one direction or the other. One is that you read the Bible uh, strictly historically. Uh, and so, for instance, the book of Exodus is a historical narrative. It's a historical account of something that really happened with a real people. Now, there's a lot of dispute about that amongst people, especially those who might not believe the Bible's authenticity. But as there are at least, if not, I would say, countless more historical authors that speak about the Exodus than there are about a lot of other ancient accounts of stories and even wars that we take for granted. For instance, you know, things like the Trojan War or Peloponnesian Wars, things like that. The Exodus actually has more historical writings about it uh, to say that it was an actual historical event that actually happened. But sometimes what we'll do is we'll read the Bible and we'll only see it in that lens. This is something that happened. We're trying to learn about what happened. But that's not the only way that we ought to read it as Christians. We need to acknowledge and recognize that the Exodus is historically true and that it is spiritually and symbolically true, that there's a story that's happening here that the entire New Testament is predicated upon. All of the New Testament writers are going to point back to this story and say that this story happened in real time and in real life because God was trying to communicate something that was true of all humanity and all times. So for instance, you got the children of Israel who are under the house of bondage, under the house of slavery, under the tyranny of Pharaoh, and Paul would say, and all of humanity is in the house of bondage under the tyranny of Satan and sin, born that way, just like the children of Israel born into the house of slavery. We're born that way. He says it in Romans 3 like this. He's speaking to Jews and Gentiles, and Paul says, all of you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's talking about that bondage that we're in. And then, of course, what we're going to see in the book of Exodus is God is going to raise up a redeemer named Moses who will bring them out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. God will continually identify himself as the God who brought you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. And this is meant to symbolize that Christ would come and that he would take us out of the house of bondage under the tyranny of sin, not just the tyranny of an earthly Pharaoh, but this is what a lot of people mistook Jesus' ministry for whenever he first came to the earth in the first advent. They thought that he was going to take Israel out of the tyranny of the Roman occupiers. But Jesus came to do much more than that, not less than that. He came to take us out from underneath the tyranny of Satan and sin and bring us into a future, just like Moses took the children of Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea and into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. God has done the same for us in Christ. And this is what the story of Exodus really is all about. It's both historically true and really happened, and it's telling us something more about ourselves. It's telling us something more deeply about the truths of Scripture, and most of all, it's pointing to Jesus Christ. So Jesus, later on, is going to be referred to in the book of Hebrews as the greater Moses. He says Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses in the same way that a builder of a house is more glory than the house itself which is a pretty powerful statement if you think about it. You look at a house and you think, wow, that's really beautiful. And the writer of Hebrews would say, yes, the house is beautiful. How, much, how awesome is the guy who built that? Or gals, 
or the gal who built that. All right, I'm helping you out. All right, you can do it, deal with a hammer if you want. All right, that's good. The idea is that Christ is the point of Exodus. He's the point of the redemptive story. Now, this morning, what I want to do in these handful of verses that I have is really talk how Exodus 1, verses 8 through 23, develop the Christian worldview. And in particular, they tell us God's purposes. They tell us Satan's response, Satan's ploys in response to God's purposes. And then what is our call in the midst of that? And it kind of frames that with the children of Israel. We have to, we're not really trying to weave ourselves into a story we don't belong in. Uh, the New Testament tells us that for now that we are in Christ, that we've been grafted into Israel. So when we read Israel, we have to read in, this is we're the people of God as Christians. In the name of Christ, we've been made into the people of God. And so how can we learn how we ought to respond? Now I mentioned this to the nine, and I want to mention it before I pray. If we're going to consider Satan's ploys, Satan's schemes, Satan's activity, we must know something fundamental about him. And that is that Satan is not first an actor. He's not the one who first acts because God himself acts first always. The Bible doesn't begin with Satan. The Bible begins with God. The Bible doesn't begin with Satan doing a thing and then God reacting. The Bible begins with God acting in mercy, grace, and love and creating the whole world and then Satan reacting to that. And that playbook will be followed from then on. Satan can't have plans of his own. He only has counter plans to God's purposes. And so if you know what God's purposes are, then you could pretty much understand how Satan will act because he will act in direct contravention to that because ultimately his purposes are contingent upon God's existence. We're going to get this later on when God tells Moses, I am who I am. Meaning that everything else is contingent upon God, including Satan and all of his darkness. He's trying to work against that which is. And that's always how he will act. So before we do that, what I want to do is I want to pray, and as we always pray, because we need the Lord's help, but particularly what I want to pray for is, this is a pretty heavy part of the story, isn't it? Like when you just kind of read it, it's like, this isn't a chipper one, and I'm not like in the mood to be unchipper, but it's like, I can't make this chipper. This is an intense portion of the story. It goes from pretty good with Joseph, and now we're going to get to bad, bad, worse, maybe worse you could imagine, in like, I don't know, 14 or 16 verses. So I want to pray. I want to ask the Lord to help us, help us to find the life in the midst of this story that has a lot of death in it. And in so doing that, we would find Jesus. So if you'll bow your heads, uh, I'll pray for us. Father, we humble ourselves first and foremost in thanksgiving. We thank you for what a privilege it is that we get to sit now under the authority of your word. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will Delight yourself in using the power of your word to minister to us now. We do ask God, give us, each of us, individually, as families, and as individuals, what we need. What we need that we don't even see we need, we ask that you would give us. And Holy Spirit, we also ask that corporately as a church, you would shape us, mold us, that we might be more gloriously acting in your image to be challenged, to be convicted, to be confronted and comforted. God, we trust you. We pray for our children right now as they're being ministered to and as the Bible's being taught to them, we ask that you would, Lord, bless them with the word and bless those who teach them, my God, as they delight your heart. We trust you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's read. I want to read verses 8 through 14. So we pick up the story. Seventy people have entered uh, into Egypt after Joseph. So you guys remember the story of Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. 
This is an omen of what's coming, right? Because Joseph's the father of Israel. He goes into slavery, meaning there's going to be slavery. Ty even mentioned this last week in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. God tells Abraham that they are going to be enslaved for 400 years in a land, and then God's going to bring them out of that land. And so uh, Joseph enters in. He's falsely accused. He interprets the dreams of Pharaoh. And it's through Joseph's interpretation of the dream that Egypt is saved. Egypt is headed for famine, and they don't know it. And Joseph interprets the dream. Pharaoh wisely puts Joseph as his prime minister. They store enough grain in the years of plenty for seven years so that when the years of drought come, Egypt is spared. Through what? Through Joseph. And this is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's in Joseph here that Egypt gets the blessing, right? And so then what happens? Even the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery, they come into Egypt, and of all persons, it's 70 people. And there's a lot of symbolism here. First, you get the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Jacob. Later on, Jesus is going to have his 12 disciples. You get 70 people coming in to Israel, and later on, Jesus is going to send out his 70, right? So there's a lot of symbolism that's happening here right in the first chapter. But what happens, and time mentioned this, 70 people turns into like 1.8 million over 400 years. Like, reminds me of Providence. It's like people are being obedient to the command, all right? And God's blessing them. Lots and lots and lots of children. Now, one simple moment changes everything, and that is verse 8. A pharaoh arises that forgets Joseph. And that's the beginning of some terrible times, but it's kind of like Charles Dickens here. It's It's the best of times, and it's the worst of times. It's the worst of times for Israel, but what's beginning here is the beginning of a nation, the birth of Israel out of Egypt. Okay, let's read verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many, and they're too mighty for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for the Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh, who had forgotten the work of Joseph, that namely that Joseph had saved the kingdom of Egypt from a famine, begins to reconsider his relationship to the children of Israel because they've become too mighty. He has new ideology that he presses. So I want you to picture him like a politician standing up, giving a speech. He has his ideology that he pushes. He has his policies that he instates, and then he has results of those policies. So I want to roll, roll through those really quickly so that we can kind of put ourselves in ancient Egypt at this time with a lot of Jewish people underneath oppression. The ideology is something like this. There's too many of these Jews. The Israelites are overpopulated. We need to fix the population problem of the Jews. How do you do it? His ideology is we need to deal shrewdly with them because if we don't, they're going to turn on us. They're going to join our enemies. They're going to fight us. And then there's this really, really odd, if you you think about it, there's, there's an odd ending to this, and they might escape. Now, I spent a lot of time thinking about this because... And not that I'm naive, politicians don't have any problem being contradictory to their own policies, but it feels like that's contradictory. We're afraid of these people because they might join the enemy's turn on us and take over our empire, and also they might escape. Well, which is it? 
Are they looking to run from you or are they looking to take you over? Well, it doesn't matter because Pharaoh's got it in his head that he's after these people, which is what tips you off immediately to there's a cosmic battle behind every physical battle. There's a spiritual battle behind every earthly battle. And here the Pharaoh says, we have to oppress them. We have to deal shrewdly with them so we can protect ourselves. And then he kind of tips his hand and says, and we, we can't let them go. We have to enslave these people. They're ours. That's the idea. So what policies does he put in place? Well, he tells all of Egypt, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Ultimately, it leads to enslaving them because they keep multiplying. The Bible says, and it says this a lot, actually, the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied. So now people are kind of getting worried about this. So what do they do? Put more tasks on them. It's not working. So then they finally just fully enslave them and they enslave them to be bricklayers and also to work the field. You know, we watch Prince of Egypt. So we mostly focus on the bricks because the bricks without straw, but it was all over the place, all over Egypt. They were the slaves. They worked in the fields. They did everything that the Pharaoh and his taskmasters told them they must do. It's interesting. It says in the Bible that they build the storehouses of Pithom and Ramses for the Pharaoh at this time which is an inversion of what Joseph had done out of his free will, what Joseph had done underneath God's uh, anointing, what Joseph had done as he interpreted the dream, which was to build storehouses in order to save Egypt. Now they're being enslaved to do against their will. Does it make sense of this inversion that happens? And it happens quickly. It happens with forgetting Joseph. And then finally, we're going to get to the midwives, and we're going to get to that in a second, the worst of all the policies before it really turns bad. So what do we see here? Well, In the Bible, what we saw was that God had promised that as Israel grew, remember God's promised Abraham, Abraham, and and, and it's, it's always God showing his might, flexing his muscles. Abraham didn't have any kids. Abraham had a barren wife. Abraham was old. And when you like really old, he was 99 before he had his first kid. I don't know any guys in the room, but when you have like your family planning conversations, 99 is usually not in that. And I know ladies, you're not thinking that either, right? Um, Abraham, through you, you're going to have many, many nations are going to come from you. That's just, it's laughable when you don't have any kids. Nations, kings will come from you. Look up at the stars, Abraham, more than the stars than you can see. They're going to be coming from you. Now, there's a particular line that I've already mentioned that's key here. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, God had promised in his covenant with Abraham that everyone should see the increase of God's people as a blessing. As the growth of Israel happens, the gladness of the nation should increase. That's the idea. But Matthew Henry makes a good point. What happens with the inversion of that? The growth of Israel had become the grief of Egypt. That's what Matthew Henry said. The growth of Israel had become the grief of Egypt. Rather than them seeing Israel growing as something they should rejoice, it became something they had to stop. And that's how you can see the hand of the enemy active. I think it's Mark Twain. It might, you know how you get on like quotes and then you don't know if it's really true if you Google it. This is what happened with this one. But it's attributed to Mark Twain. It could have been someone else. But it says, history may not repeat itself, but history always rhymes. Many times over the last 2,000 years since the church was born, the church has been deemed a source of grief for the world even when all the evidence points to the contrary. So Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, a preservative. You preserve that which is decaying. And just like in Egypt, where Israel was the only reason that Egypt was saved from the famine, they began to be seen as the only reason that Egypt might fall. So has the church been throughout history. Through the attacks of the enemy, 
working through the rulers of the day, the church has been seen as something that actually harms humanity rather than that which is preserving it. The best example of this is as Rome is falling, all of the elites of the day are going to the Roman emperors and saying, Rome is falling because the Christians did it. And then we have the great theological treatise from Augustine of Hippo writing The City of God, which is his defense that no, it's not because of the Christians that Rome is falling. In fact, it's the hope of the world that the church exists. If you haven't read City of God, I would always encourage it. It is a little bit hefty, but it's great. And why does this happen, though? Ladies, you can listen up on this one. As a joke, you could put it on your refrigerator for your husband. Matthew Henry goes on to say, when men deal wickedly, it is common for them to believe that they deal wisely. I'll read that again. That's a little coy. You might not want to put that on the fridge. But when men deal wickedly, it's common for them to believe that they deal wisely. Now, that is kind of funny when you think about it in your everyday life because you're like, yeah, you do silly things sinful things, broken things, then you're like, no, I'm smart. That's why I did that. And everybody's done that at some level before they finally wise up and say, actually, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I was wrong. You know, it's always you want to double down on the wrong turn you made, guys, on the road trip. It's like, no, I meant to go to Kansas. You know, no, you didn't. But think about that in terms of kings, rulers of the earth. When they deal wickedly but think they're wise, that's the potentially worst thing that could happen to a nation. If you keep doubling down on that which is wicked and calling it wise, that's what the Pharaoh's going to do here. But he has a purpose, and I want you to know this purpose is it's coming out of Pharaoh's mouth, but it's not coming out of Pharaoh's mind. It's coming out of Pharaoh's edicts, but it's not coming from Pharaoh himself. This is directly a spiritually, cosmically evil movement that's happening through the Pharaoh. The purposes of Pharaoh's policies are fourfold, to break the spirits of Israel and rob them of everything in life that is meaningful. He wants to break them. He wants to cause them poor health. He wants to shorten their lives. This is, in your Bible, one of the only times that you can Google depopulation on the internet and find it in the Bible and not on, you know, not on a million other sites that you're worried about. He literally wants to depopulate the Jews. That's what he's doing here. He wants to discourage them from marrying and having children. He wants them to think, why in the world would we have kids if this is what their life's going to be like? And then finally, he wants to encourage them to abandon the Hebrews, abandon the Hebrew gods, and join the Egyptians, and in particular, worship the Egyptian gods. It's Pharaoh's aim. And if you know Pharaoh's aim, you can also know Satan's ploy. But you can also see here that God's plan always endures, and it's always because Satan and all of his minions and all of his tyrants, they never consider God. Because in their worldview, they can't. Even if they're completely and utterly opposed to him, they can't consider that he might be using even their wicked acts to bring about his purposes. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Let's start in verse 15. What does he do next? And when the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, then said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, we'll come back to these ladies. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Now, you could pass right by that, but what you need to know is that that is terrible. That is infanticide. That is awful stuff. He is telling these midwives that they should wait upon the labor of the women, and unbeknownst to them, he should kill them, the babies, if they're boys, so that they could most likely pretend that it happened in the birth, because infant mortality was most likely higher. Not most likely. It was higher. It would be common to say, we don't know what happened. All the boys are dying, though. It's terrible to think about, but nonetheless did happen. 
And yet the midwives fear God. Listen to verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Why have you let the male children live? I love this response. Even all the commentators, we don't know if they're lying here. They might be telling the truth, but man, it does seem coy and a little tongue in cheek. Here, listen to their response. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, (laughs) for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, it seems to me like that might be a shot. Ladies, you can decide and tell me later, but it seems to me like that's a little bit of a shot at the Egyptian women. Now, here's what's interesting is what we know is that these are Egyptian, mid, Egyptian women who are the midwives. See, it's often misconstrued that these are Hebrew women who are the midwives. No, they are the Hebrew midwives who are Egyptian women sent by Pharaoh to do an evil deed. The reason you know this is because Pharaoh would never have trusted a Hebrew woman to carry out this evil deed. Why would he do that? He knows better. He sends the Egyptian women, and guess what they do? We're not interested in that. These Egyptian midwives drew their line and said, I fear God, not him. This is evil stuff. Now, of course, Pharaoh's furious. He questions the midwives. And listen to what he does next. This is where you know it's satanically motivated. Tyranny goes too far. Here we go. It says, so God dealt well with the midwives. Then people multiplied, grew very strong. Verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Here it is, verse 22. And then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, not just the nurses. Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So he literally makes mass murder legal at this point. If you're a citizen, you see a little baby boy, you can snag that child and throw him into the river. I want you to consider that. That is, that's, that's nuts. It's crazy. Now, why do I attach that with satanic motives? Well, if it's not obvious, it's at least biblical. There's always this refrain of multiplication and family and blessing from Genesis all the way through your Bible. Genesis starts with the command, go be fruitful and multiply, uh, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. God gives that command to Adam and Eve. He's going to continue to give that command. He gives it to Noah again after the flood. And then in chapter 12, something changes. God tells Abraham, I will multiply you. In other words, I give you a promise with our covenant. I'm going to bring about the multiplication of you and your nation. And from then on, you're going to see this promise of multiplication coming to fruition. And like I said in the beginning, if Satan cannot act but must react, then the reaction to God saying, I'm going to do a thing, would be Satan saying, I'm going to keep a thing from happening. Namely, the multiplication of God's people over the face of the earth. God's purpose is to have a people for himself that he could reveal his glory to and reveal his glory through. He wants that people to grow so that more people see his glory. He wants to add to that number. This is not something that's Old Testament. It's, it's in the New Testament everywhere. Jesus says, I want my banquet table full. Go out into the highways, the byways. Make sure everyone's at my marriage supper. Make sure everyone's at my table. The Great Commission is a retelling of the, of the cultural mandate in that not only are we to have children as Christians, we are to have spiritual babies. Go be fruitful and multiply. Make disciples of all nations. It also tells us that our God is a living God. Jesus even tells the Pharisees this when they question him. He is the God of the living. But this world, ruled by what the Bible says is the prince in the power of the air, prince of darkness, is a world of death because it's fallen and has, there has been a, an authority apportioned to the God of this world, little g God. And if our God, capital G, is a God of life, 
the little g God of this world is a God of death. Only in so much as he must be because he is simply reacting to that which God is. If you're a note taker, this might be something to consider. You can understand much of what the enemy is trying to accomplish in the world by asking yourself a simple question. Whether you're faced with an everyday decision, you're faced with a news article or a news story, you're faced with any sort of worldview conversation with the family or friends, ask yourself this question. Does this action lead to human flourishing as described in Scripture, or does it lead to human degradation and destruction? Does it make you less dignified as a human being made in the image of God? Does it degrade your humanity as an image bearer of God? Does this act make you more like Jesus, less like Jesus? Does it reflect that which God has said is true in the scriptures, or does it destroy, degrade, defame? That simple question can give you a lot of understanding about that which is happening in the world. You see, Pharaoh's policies here are much like Satan's policies always are, He doesn't do typically the dirty work himself, but he sends his minions to do the dirty work, and he does so through deception. He tells these women, if you don't do this, then these people, these Israelites, they're going to take over the whole of Egypt, and they're going to enslave you. So dehumanize them. When that doesn't work, he goes to a policy of mass murder. Now, here's the thing. The reason I say this is an example of a playbook the enemy has run for thousands of years is because You could go through the Bible and you could see this happens over and over and over again. Another example of this is with Herod. So King Herod wants to basically send the wise men so that he could kill King Jesus. Jesus gets away. Interestingly, where does Jesus go? Egypt. (laughs) And then he doesn't get to actually lay his hands on Christ. So what does he do? He orders all of his minions, kill every child two years old and younger. Mass genocide. In history, it's called the Massacre of the Innocents. But I decided to just kind of go through, like, just the 20th century, for instance, and you can get examples of this. This always happens. It's the same playbook. It's dehumanization that leads to death. You could start with the Bolsheviks in the 20th century. You could say Hitler in the Holocaust with the concentration camps, Stalin in the gulags, Mao in the color revolution, Pol Pot. I could continue on. These are all tyrannical movements that start with a people that are our problem, and now they need to be eliminated and they need to be dehumanized, and it leads to mass death. And we could say that that has a political issue. It's always a spiritual issue. Never kid yourself. Politics are the thin veneer through which spirituality, the darker forces, tend to move. That's why you always see it's the rulers of the day that start to do things in the Bible that you're like, what? How could they have gotten away with that? Well, the best news about this is that Pharaoh doesn't get away with it because of two very courageous women. I love this story because of that. It's just these two women who are midwives, Egyptian midwives at that. Satan's deceptive. He will convince human beings that death and degradation of others is actually morally virtuous. You ever thought about that? He's teaching the Egyptians that it's actually not a terrible thing for you to kill these babies. It's a good thing because you're saving the empire. So do it. Satan will play upon our own feelings of fear. The Israelites are going to turn against you if you don't do this. They're going to destroy you. He'll teach you to ultimately dehumanize people to the extent that they're no longer even a part of the human species anymore. They're unworthy of dignity. And he always does it by starting with changing what is right and wrong. He changes the standards of truth and falsehood, good and evil. And he just, he manipulates 
what's right and what's wrong by asking who decides. And in Egypt, it was the Pharaoh who decided who was wrong. And now God's going to bring his people out of Egypt. And on Sinai, he's going to say, I am the Lord. In other words, I decide. He's going to give them the law. Okay, I want to spend the rest of our time on Shifra and Pua, which I wouldn't, you know, you can't look those up in like baby name books now. But talk about amazing women, though, okay? These are some exemplary characters in Exodus 1. Their names mean respectively. Shipra means beautiful. Pua means brilliant or radiant. Shipra means beautiful and Pua means brilliant and radiant. It's through these two faithful women that God brings about his redemptive plans and the birth of a nation. And listen to me, and the fall of the most evil empire the world had known up to this point. Egypt was about to go down big. And it happens through these two women. They're responsible also for saving countless of babies. We don't even know all the names of the babies they probably saved, but we do know one name, and it's kind of a big deal, Moses. Now, just as an aside and an important one, I know many of us, we live our lives and say, I'm just a small cog in a big wheel. I'm just a nurse. I'm just a construction worker. I'm just a mom. I'm just a software engineer. I'm just a, you fill in the blank. It's usually what we think. How could I really be significant? And I would say, according to this scripture and many others, no, you are not. Ultimately, you're a son and daughter of God, chosen meticulously in his wisdom and in his providence to place you exactly where you are for his purposes. And we all have these moments of inflection where courage is offered to us where we can stand and do that which is right, which seems to be small and insignificant, and yet it has ramifications that change the world, or we can cower. Acts 17 says that God chose your boundary place. He, he chose your dwelling. He chose where you would be. If you're next to your husband or your wife right now, you think that you chose them on one fateful night, you know, listening to Tim McGraw. No. Later, when you're putting your kids down to bed, I want you to look in their eyes and know God has chosen this. You to be their parents, them to be your children. Next time you go to that job that you hate or love, I'll leave that option open. God has chosen and decided. And why? For his glory. He will give you these moments that may seem insignificant moments. Could these women have just decided to go along to get along? Yes. What does the Bible say? The very simple sentence that will change history. They feared God and not the Pharaoh. It doesn't mean it wasn't scary. I don't think that it means that they weren't scared. Fearing God is a foundational word. It's a foundational idea. They feared God before anything else. And it's from this that they make this decision. So I want to say this. Yes, your life in your own hands will be inconsequential at best. But in the hands of a faithful creator, if we would submit permitting God himself to wield our lives, he will make our lives beautifully radiant, as glorious as they could ever be. That's the point of these women. And finally, you might say, well, that's, yeah, that's them, but that's not me. Remember, these are Egyptian women, not Hebrew women. They probably couldn't tell you much about Yahweh. They just knew this is wrong. Okay. I want to, I want to read these quotes. I mentioned some of the 20th century because I was getting to here. 
uh, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And, and I chose this because some, most of us are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you might not be. He's a, he's a German pastor, lived during World War II. Um, he wrote Cost of Discipleship. Uh, he was killed during World War II for his role in resistance against uh, the Nazi regime. But I wanted to read about his courageous acts because at the time probably would not have been considered all that courageous. In fact, he might have been considered um, foolish. He might have been considered a quack. He might have been considered a radical uh, because he was, n- he was not a man who was on the side of the majority, especially in his own nation. I want to read to you. This is him from the pulpit as he's preaching during the rise of the Third Reich. He says this, quote, The fearful danger of the present time is that above the cry for authority, we forget that man stands alone before the ultimate authority. That anyone who lays violent hands on a man here is infringing eternal laws and taking upon himself superhuman authority, which will eventually crush him. The church has only one altar, the altar of the Almighty, before which all creatures must kneel. Whoever seeks something other than this must keep away. He cannot join us in the house of God. The church only has one pulpit, and from that pulpit, faith in God will be preached, and no other faith, and no other will than the will of God, no matter how well-intentioned. That wouldn't have been popular today. Of course, Bonhoeffer is not only famous for his writings, but he's famous for his resistance under the Third Reich. He was one of the few Christian pastors that did so. He fled in 1939. He returned in 1941 after feeling convicted. He went back into the war-torn areas of Europe, particularly into Germany, because he felt convicted to minister to the people. He joined the German intelligence, ultimately working undercover for the resistance, smuggling Jews to Switzerland, and he was arrested, and he was caught helping the resistance later to be uncovered that he was helping in the assassination plots of Hitler after Valkyrie did not work and was thwarted. He was later uh, martyred. He was later killed in one of the camps. This is what he said three months before his arrest. He says this, who stands fast? Only the man whose final standard is not his reason, his principles, his conscience, his freedom, or his virtue, but who is ready to sacrifice all of this when he is called to obedient and responsible action in faith and an exclusive allegiance to God. I want to read that again because all of the things he said are not going to give you enough to be courage and and stand fast are all the things that I would have thought, yeah, you need those. And he's not saying you don't need them. He's saying those aren't the reasons you stand fast. Listen to what he says. It's not a man's reason as his final standard, not his principles, not his conscience, not his freedom, not his virtue, but it's the man who will sacrifice all of those things when God calls him to be obedient. That's the man who will stand fast. When he is called to obedient and responsible action in faith, exclusive to God and God alone, allegiance to God and God alone, then he will stand fast. So he was ultimately killed in his role for resisting Hitler. And this is quotes from a biographer about his time right at his death. It says this, Bonhoeffer Bonhoeffer told his cellmate on the morning of his execution, this is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. The camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's execution later wrote, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. And I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed so devout 
and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer, and then he climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after just a few seconds, and in almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, a camp doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man so entirely submissive to the will of God. Close quote. So Bonhoeffer's acts of courage led him to the gallows. But I think that there's a key here that we need to see, and it's here in Exodus. The lie the enemy tells us is that courageous faith will always lead us to death. That's how he fears us into being cowardly. But courageous faith, according to the Bible, doesn't always lead to earthly death. If you read Hebrews 11, it gives you all the examples of God bringing tons of life through it. Exodus with these midwives is an example. Even Pharaoh can't snuff their lives out, and she saves countless lives. But the enemy wants us to fear earthly death. And the Bible doesn't say that we never might face that. Bonhoeffer's a great example, and one of my favorite lines in all of Hebrews is at the back half of chapter 11. It says of the people who were sawn in two, who were in caves and dens of the earth, the ones who gave up their lives, and then it has this one line, of whom the world was not worthy. So sometimes it does end there, but I love that Bonhoeffer gives us the key. This is the end, but for me, this is the beginning of life. You see, the God of death cannot snuff out life even if he kills the human being. Because Christ is the author of life, which is why Hebrews 12 says, how do we live like this under the cloud of witnesses? We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the author of life. And so how is the, what is the result of these women's courage? Well, the result of this women's courage is the very thing you would expect, life. What does God do? He multiplies the children of Israel. He helps them grow strong even though they're oppressed. And then there's this little line, and he gives what? He rewards the midwives with families. He gives them life. He gives them a household. He gives them a name. He gives them a lineage. God gives life. Now, I want to end with this. So how then should we be courageous? And I have a few points. Being courageous in 2022. If you're a note taker, you've been waiting for this moment. And why do I say this? Well, because we could read Bonhoeffer and say, yes, I don't want to be that. But I think the better, the better response should say, why do we need to be courageous now? And the answer is because the best predictor of future courage will be current courage. Sometimes we think, well, I'll be courageous when the time comes. And that's just not the case. Jesus said he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much. And he who is not faithful with little will not be faithful with much. In other words, when their stakes are lower and you're still not courageous, don't think you'll be courageous when the stakes are higher. If you're not squatting 315 now, don't think that without working out, you're going to get there one day and say, oh, I got that. So here's my ways to be courageous in 2022. The first one is this. Resolve this year, if you're going to do a resolution, to love God, read the scripture, live in Christian community, and walk in obedient faith from a changed heart. That's number one. And you may say, Cord, I've been doing that every single year. And I'll just tell you, and this is not meant to be condemning, but for myself, when I reflect upon my own heart, I ask myself, how well am I doing at that? How faithful am I pursuing even those things? Is it true of myself that when I read the Bible and I see it as the mirror, the law of liberty, that I say, I am just nailing it? Now, the beauty of this is that we have the gospel. We can come humbly before God and he could change us, but not unless we're willing to admit where we are and where we're not. Number two, repent of sin, and this is key, and call it sin. Repent of sin 
and call it sin. So we live in a time where it's okay to repent, just don't call it sin. It's like, I'm sorry because, you know, we're all imperfect. It's like, yeah, but you're kind of missing something there. It's like, I'm sorry, I hurt your feelings. Yeah, well, that's important, but Psalm 51. Against you and you alone, oh my God, I have sinned. That's what David says. It's like, we don't want to say the sin word because it's like, it's the S word now, I guess. And yet it's essential. Let's repent of sin and say it's sinful. There's power there because what it does is it shines light on the enemy and all of his devices, all of his works, all of his schemes, all of his ploys. It shines the light of the gospel on it to say, it's not just mistakes that I'm making, it's sin I'm committing. I don't, I'm not stumbling into it by accident. My heart needs changing. I need Christ. And then the good news is that Christ is an abundant supply, friends. Number three, be fruitful and multiply. And now I said this to the nine, but hold on. Some of you are doing okay on this, okay? You might need it. There's some people that need, you know, chill. But I'm just kidding. It's good. I'm glad. Have more, have more kids. It's amazing. Uh, what a gift. But remember the spiritual truth here. Be fruitful and multiply. And by that, I mean, we need to be about the business of making disciples. For every meal train that we're creating for the babies that are born in the hospital, we ought to be celebrating that the baptisms as they're going down into the water of baptism and out into the newness of life, we're celebrating water that's breaking at the hospital. We need to be celebrating water that's breaking at the church. People are coming to know Jesus because we're not just being fruitful and multiplying by having bassinets in our home, but spiritual bassinets in the church. People are coming to know Christ the church is expanding because the gospel is powerful. Do we believe, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And as much as he can make Israel multiply physically, he can make the church, the spiritual Israel, multiply spiritually. And I believe this. This is God's will. If you're certain about one thing, that God's will for your life, it's that you'd be a disciple maker for his glory. And you might be, well, I'm not equipped. Well, number one, you may not, ever be as equipped as you need to be to do something that you and I don't do. We don't do the saving. I don't know how much Bible you need to know before you can save a person, but I'm not there yet. I don't think I'm ever getting there. God does the saving. We do the thanking. (laughs) But then I would say, hey, well, get equipped. There's going to be opportunities for you to do that. Lastly, number four, say no when asked to lie or to live a lie and speak the truth, no matter how popular it is this year. If someone asks you to lie or to live a lie, say no. It's one of the most powerful, complete sentences that you can give, and that is no. Parents learn that early. No is a complete sentence. Learn to say no and speak the truth no matter how popular it is. And you might say, okay, Court, that sounds good. How am I going to do that? I'm not a courageous person. And I would say, even if you think you're the most courageous person in the room, we must remember as Christians, it is only in Christ that we have the cause for this courage and the confidence for this courage. You aren't going to be courageous on your own, even if you think that you are a stud. We are courageous. Sometimes we'll say, I want to be courageous for Christ. And I would say, I understand the sentiment. I think the preposition's mixed. We are courageous through Christ and in Christ because Christ was courageous for us. That's the gospel. Christ stood in our place for our sins. He was the one who took our place. We don't stand and say, I got to protect Jesus. Jesus stands in our way and protects us. He's the lion. We're the lamb. It's silly for lambs to get in front of Jesus and try to fend off the wolves. So what do we do? We're the lamb and we just get behind the lion. But the key is that that's still an act of obedient faith. 
to say, I trust the lion will show up because sometimes the lion is not physically visible. Like when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided they're going to go into the fiery furnace. It's not until they're in there that there's a fourth man in the fire. And so it's through Christ and it's in Christ that we have courageous faith. And so I want to end with that thought. Then in 2022, one of the ways that we could take the examples of these two Egyptian midwives is to say, not only will we be courageous, but we will only, we will only be courageous in Christ. Any other courage, it runs the risk of being pride and it leads to death. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, thank you. Um, thank you that your word has a way of simultaneously wounding and healing. Thank you that your word lays bare all of our intentions of our heart and then it gives us brand new intentions from you. It lays bare our motivations and then you reveal to us your motivations and you're so good to us, God. And so now we do ask that as we take of your supper, that it might be not just nourishing to our bodies, but nourishing to our souls, much more than bread and wine. May it be the body and the blood that you've given to us that we remember. And spiritually speaking, my God, I do pray that you would meet our needs, that we might be the people of God, no matter what empire we may be under. We are your people. You are our King, Lord Jesus. We are grateful that it's so. So we worship you now in spirit and in truth, and we pray it in your precious name. Amen.